Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome back. How are you? Uh, this is My Mate Bought a Toaster, the podcast that opens up celebrities' Amazon accounts to tell their life story. It's a simple premise, um, but it's one that has occupied my life for the last two and a half years. And many of you have been so nice to listen to the show and give us lots of lovely reviews. So thank you very much for that. I hope you are enjoying Series 6. Um, we are getting towards the end of it now. We've got Danny Robbins today. Wonderful Danny Robbins. Uh, the increasingly spooky Danny Robbins. That has become his thing of late. And we'll talk lots about that uh, during this show. So if you are a fan of Uncanny or uh, the Battersea Poltergeist and you've come here um, because of that, then I hope you enjoy a little bit more insight into the uh, spooky mind of Danny Robbins. Uh, and if you are a regular listener, welcome back. So as usual, uh, a few bits of admin. Um, what can I tell you? My shoulder's hurting. Uh, that's a brief bit of admin. I know, it's in my left shoulder. Does that mean heart attack? So this could be my last ever episode. Um, also, I've had a rubbish few weeks. Very sadly, my beloved's most wonderful uh, creature in the world, my dog, uh, Polly, died uh, two and a half weeks ago. Um, so I've had a really shit couple of weeks, actually. But doing this podcast and hearing from you lot and editing it and doing some interviews has really kept me going. So I don't know why I'm thanking you lot, but thanks for listening, because without you listening, I wouldn't bother to do the podcast. So you are kind of involved. Um, so anyway, that's what's been going on with me. Hurty shoulder and slight heartache. But apart from that, all is well. I hope all is good with you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As ever, don't forget, give us a lovely review, give us a lovely um, rating, give us a lovely big fat subscribe and um, give us a follow on all the socials at ToasterPod on the bits and bobs. Enjoy Danny Robbins. See you soon now. Hello, welcome back. It's another episode of My Mate Bought a Toaster. Thank you so much for listening. And this week, I am very, very pleased to be joined by a, uh, a brilliant actor, uh, a writer, a podcaster, and I mean, he's a he's a spooky man as well. But we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Uh, please welcome the wonderful Danny Robbins. Hello, Danny Robbins. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm all right. I'm not too bad. I'm kind of excited <laughs> okay good good well i'm glad you're excited and thank you so much for um sending me all your amazon details it's it's worth saying danny that you know we have different approaches from different guests on this show sometimes people say yeah log in mate it's fine and sometimes people just send me screenshots and i honestly i promise you i don't mind what they do and you were fully up for sending me the logins and then there was an intervention <laughs> by your other half wasn't there who <laughs> doesn't trust them and i i feel i feel fine about this but basically your other half said no, i'm not letting this man have, have the logins to our amazon account she just would not have it. I mean, we, we, we literally had an argument about it in the kitchen last night where I was like, I've known him for years. It's fine. He won't rob us. And she was just like, no, 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 I'm not having it. 
No way, no way. And she sat there and, and I was like, but it'll take ages to do all these screenshots. This is, you're taking like a decade of screenshots of Amazon purchases. And she was like, I'll do it. It's fine. But you are not giving Tom the details. I think she, I, I think she's right. The, the only reason that I am able to do this program is yeah. the pandemic. Because I, I had sworn pre-pandemic that I was going to give up Amazon. I was part of that kind of whole wave of like, going to move away, going to go back to like, you know, I'm going to support small bookshops. I don't yeah. mind traveling seven miles to get my, you know, my my copy of <laughs> the latest uh, Richard Osman yeah. book. Um, yeah. But, you know, obviously the pandemic blew all that. And instantly I was kind of stockpiling and bulk buying sort of Star Wars books yeah. for the kids and Lego and just anything to keep us busy during the pandemic. So... Mm-mm-mm. There you go. Their, the addiction goes their on. Their shares, the addiction goes on. Their, their shares went up by something like fifty percent, didn't they? Or something ridiculous, maybe not fifty, but they went up enormously during the pandemic. I, I, I'm sure he made like an extra nineteen billion pounds, Jeff Bezos. I think. Yeah, or as he calls it, two rockets. I'm, not, I'm just making that up, obviously. But um, <laughs> yeah, we should <laughs> say all <laughs> facts that Danny and I spout during this episode <laughs> yeah. are completely made up. It's really important to establish that. At, so, at some point, my wife will intervene and just say, "Stop, stop, <laughs> don't tell him." Uh, we're going to go back to your earliest order, first of all. This is uh, 8th of December 2013, okay? This is when we're going back to. And there is a a Lucky Luke uh, movie poster. This costs £10. Uh, tell us a bit about this, please. Well, th- this is actually quite a sentimental purchase. This is bought because my brother had a son called Luke and... I was looking around thinking, what do you give a boy called Luke? And I, you know, I sort of resisted the obvious Skywalker temptation and went Mm. Lucky Luke. And I I think, I'm pretty sure it's either in Spanish or French. It's got that slightly cool kind of hipster spin to it as well. Yes, it says Lucky Luke El Intrepido. There you go. That's, that's, I'm I'm guessing that's Spanish. It's, uh, (laughs) well, actually, on here it says Argentine. Uh, Argentine. Oh, really? Oh, right. An yeah. Argentinian Lucky Luke. It's, well, it's even more exotic than I thought. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, well, Lucky Luke's obviously very lucky. He's got a fantastic uncle. He's done what he's looked out. He's looked out there. He's looked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, he really has. This is nice. Okay, so you, so your brother. Um, how's your? Do you have an older brother? Do you have a younger brother? I've got a younger brother, and. For a long time, we did not get on at all when we were kids, and we used to do terrible things to each other. I remember him throwing a golf ball and hitting me on the eye socket um, and just sort of chasing each other around the house and, like, you know, horrible things, like where you'd argue and then one of you would, like, grab a knife from the drawer and wave it at each the other person. And we'd, we, I think we were very, very different, really different kids. I was into um, theatre and... Um, sort of messing about and kind of putting on costumes and putting on voices. And he was really into football and, like you know, latterly kind of going out boozing with the lads. We grew up in Newcastle and, like, he had a Geordie accent. I didn't have a Geordie accent. He was a bit more of a lad. I was, you know, sort of, you'd have been forgiven for thinking I was stolen by the Pixies and, and taken <laughs> off. And, by the band, the Pixies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by the band, the Pixies coming in and forcing me to be an indie superstar. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 I was a very kind of middle-class Geordie kid and he kind of aspired to being a sort of proper Geordie. Um, but, you know, as adults, we've kind of actually discovered we've got lots of things in common. And um, and he is now, he's an amazing woodworker. Oh, right. He's incredible with wood. He he finds bits of driftwood on the beach. He lives near the sea now. And just, he, he takes them and makes sculptures out of them. And he makes coffee tables and 
all sorts of tables. And he he does properly exquisite stuff. So you know, it's interesting. He he has found his own way of being arty as an adult. Yes, that's rather lovely. I Daddy, I've known you for years. I didn't know you had anything to do with Newcastle. You hid that so well. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I for a long time I was a member of a Facebook group called Yes, I'm from Newcastle, and No, I don't have a Geordie accent. <laughs> I've, um, I've had to defend myself my entire life, and it's strange because you know you you never meet somebody from London and go, Hang on a minute. No. You haven't got a Cockney accent. What's going on? You you can't possibly come from London. But, you know, like anybody from Newcastle is given this kind of third degree grilling yeah. if you don't have a Geordie accent. And, you know, I mean, I, I what can I say? I'm a middle class kid. I mean, you know, I, I the next thing that comes is always like, oh, so you went to some sort of posh private school. I'm like, mm. no, I went to um, a, uh, a perfectly ordinary school. I, I was just bullied. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a happy story. <laughs> All right, so already we've dug in. We found out you're from Newcastle. This is good. Uh, you can see here on the 12th of September, 24th of September, 2013, Toddler Calm, A Guide for Calmer Toddlers and Happier Parents. Well, it's interesting. That's two days after my own birthday, and um, I clearly was rewarding myself by trying to sort out my, my life. Yeah, I mean, so that was... Um, that, that would have been just a few months after my son was born. My son was born in July 2012, so... Um, yeah, I, I think we were going through that um, that that idea of trying to control the uncontrollable. All those mm. books you buy as a brand new parent, thinking that you can learn how to do this, you know. And and I think there's a whole rash of them there, like you know how to bring up boys. Oh, raising boys calm, in the 21st century, com- completely yeah, yeah, updated yeah, yeah. and revised. I bet I bet there's been some revisions, lads. <laughs> there you go. I bet there's been some revisions there. There you go. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? It plays to all your fears and anxieties. You know, that they're, they're, they're kind of brilliantly marketed brilliantly written to um to give you just enough of a sense that there might be some hope yes <laughs> but also you know not not quite enough you, you you know you can't survive on the book alone you've also got to then pay for the course with the person who wrote the book yes go on the kind of six week course about how to do it and I, I think I just gave up at a certain point I think I just kind of realized that actually people had been bringing up children since cavemen times and you know, you kind of have to learn on the job and you make your mistakes. And I, I think, you know, I, I did read things which were helpful. Yeah. I'm sure I did. Yeah. And there's some really interesting things in those books about raising boys, about kind of the need for different things at different points in their lives. Like I remember reading about how the mother was incredibly important at the beginning, then the father becomes more significant a few years in. Mm. And then there's a point in their lives, I think, when they're sort of maybe hitting teenagedom where they need another adult outside of Yes, we had this with Josh Howie the other day. You know, Josh was talking about okay. this. When, you, <laughs> okay. when the kid turns 12, when the boy, I think specifically a boy turns 12, he starts to need a new role model. And that breaks my heart because I'm, this is finally that I am the role model, but I've only got about another two years left. And then he's going to be, and I'm worried he's going to be, it's going to be a YouTuber, Danny. That's my worry. Well, this is the thing, YouTuber or like teacher, football coach, parole officer, you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever it is, you know, um, there's someone out there who can help your child. I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Come with me on this. Go on. Get your kids into my mate bought a toaster, right? My kids are already obsessed with uh, with Uncanny, your fantastic podcast, right? I will become your kids' uh, <laughs> idol, right? You you can become theirs, and we'll just keep communicating about what we want to try and get the others to do, right? So we can then we can control them, but they think that they've got us like an, an external idol, but actually we just got a WhatsApp group where we're making all the decisions. Oh, oh, oh my days are so embarrassing! I don't remember buying all these silly little strange things. I swear on my life, I was forced by my wife with an Abba pen knife. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, all right, look, let's crack on through. Uh, 2014, uh, we can see the kids in your life. Loads of, uh, we've got things like Fireman Sam. Oh, I love Fireman Sam. I miss watching Fireman Sam with my little boy. Um, 
and uh, oh look, here we go. This is a this is notable. Danny Robbins from the fabulous Uncanny podcast, uh, the haunting of Hill house bought on the 25th of november 2014 it's one of the greatest ghost stories ever written i would recommend it wholeheartedly to anybody and it spawned a wonderful film the haunting in the 1950s which i think is one of the great horror movies ever really um it spawned a terribly terribly bad remake with liam neeson and Catherine Caesar jones in which we just don't talk about but mm-hmm. then it obviously spawned this new series the haunting of hill house on netflix as well which is great so so i mean yeah shirley jackson it was the gift that kept on giving it it's it's spawned a lot of great um screen adaptations there is a play knocking around as well that i've got on my bookshelf it's a little bit of an obsession for me as a story it's um yeah. it's just i think it was one of the key inspirations for me in in telling ghost stories um yeah, I mean, there's, there's a. I remember reading one time um, that it's very hard to make long ghost stories. That most of the best ghost stories are short stories, like you know, M. R. James being the kind of one of the classic examples. Have you read that? Have you read, have you read Michelle? Ah, Finn Air. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering what you were looking at there. You've just plucked that from your bookshelf. Finn Air by Michelle Parver um, is <sighs> bloody great. Yeah, it's it's. Um, well, I mean, do you want to tell people what it's about? Well, no, I think you should. But it's it's. Uh, I was just pointing out how, how thin it is, how tiny it is, because you've. Why, why should they be short? Because they uh, sort of lure you in and it should be a short, sharp punch. Is that the theory as to why ghost stories are short? Well, because it's hard to maintain scares, I think. And because, yeah. you know, in any ghost story, the, the power is lost when you reveal the ghost and, it, and it's hard to yes. sort of keep from revealing the ghost the longer you go. Um, I, I, that, that book, Michelle, is it Parver or Paver? I never quite know. I'm Ooh, gonna, good I'm gonna... question. You say Parver, I'll say Paver. Okay, <laughs> let's call the whole thing off. But um, <laughs> I... I... <laughs> I, I, it's a great story. It's about some mountaineers making an ascent. I can't remember if it's Everest or a sim- similar mountain, I think, but and about the ghosts that mountaineers see. And it's um, it's a really good story. But yeah, I mean, you know, w- one of my passions is ghost stories, and I've certainly bought a few on Amazon over the years. But um, lots of collections of short stories, like there's um, E. Nesbitt uh, Horror Tales, um, I think they're called, or Horror Stories, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, M.R. James, which yes. Mark Gatiss has been adapting so brilliantly on BBC Four. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it, this is a golden age for ghost stories now. There's a load of um, ghost story novels and short stories coming out now. It's a really good time to be like into reading ghost stories. Yes, it has. It's become a very zeitgeisty thing. I wonder why that is. Is is that because of the the greater disruptions in the world at the moment? Uh, be they climate apocalypse, be they uh, World War Three? Do you think because of those enormous things going on, we look to ghost stories as comfort? Like we were saying earlier on about comfort with other things. Do you think ghost stories are really comforting because we can control the fear? I, I do. I think it's definitely connected to what's going on at the moment. I think there's a state of chaos and uncertainty and sadly death that that is very much present in society at the moment. I think you can draw parallels with post First World War and post Second World War where you had those kind of similar conditions, obviously on a, a grander scale. Um, and people reach for the paranormal. They reach for, they, they want explanations. They, they want to be reassured the idea that there might be something after death. And um, yeah, and I, I think you said, I mean, you can even track back to like Jacobean times and Jacobean drama is full of ghosts and blood and witchcraft and horror. And, you know, in that situation, it's kind of reflecting the horror of society, the division of society and plague and, you know, these witch hunts and, you know, I mean, draw your parallels, you know, however yeah. you want to now. Yeah. But- all the good stuff, all the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. But I think I think it definitely, it definitely um, 
you know, is, it comes out of the kind of society we're living in at the moment. Horror is huge at the moment. Look at Netflix. Mm. It's plastered with horror. Horror is the number one genre there. And to some degree, that's reflecting the horror society. And you're right, it does offer a sense of reassurance. I think ghosts are simultaneously frightening and reassuring. And, and there's something about the fear they induce that is kind of comforting. It's that sort of pleasurable yes. shiver down your spine. Yes. And when you were buying this book back in 2014, would, could you have possibly had any idea then? Obviously, you say you've always, has, always had a passion for the ghost stuff. But at this point in your career, what's going on in 2014, please, career-wise? You're, you're writing, you're still acting, or, or what? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I've always been obsessed with ghosts. And right. I have okay. done things about ghosts over the years. I mean, you might remember me doing a show like a long time ago called Live Ghost Hunt in Edinburgh, which was yes. a spoof of things like Most Haunted. So... Th- the recent stuff I've been doing about ghosts has been a, a long time coming. It's, it's something that's brewed since childhood. But as, as you know, I mean, we've worked together over the years on, on comedy stuff. You know, I, I was a comedy writer for a very long time and performing comedy. And I started out doing stand-up when I was 15 years old in like the no pubs way. in the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, me and Ross Noble. We, we Ross were, Noble, yes. He yeah, we were really started good, super good friends, Ross Noble and I back then. And we, we were in youth theatre together and we used to drive around in Ross's car doing stand-up gigs in places like Hartlepool and Middlesbrough and Sunderland, like, you know, quite, quite scary pubs. Um, and... Um, and so I did comedy for a long time and I think I just hit a point where I wasn't feeling very fulfilled and I was feeling a little bit like, I don't know, I, I wasn't getting a kick out of being facetious and, and frivolous and <laughs> I wanted to do something a little bit, a, a little bit more, with a bit more emotional weight, I guess, and something that maybe said something about the world. And I, and I kind of, I, I, I wrote a play version of this series I did called Rudy's Rare Records with Lenny Henry that we did on Radio 4. And we did a play version of it and it went quite well. So then I wrote another play and that went quite well. And then that sort of got me into writing drama a bit more. And then the Battersea Poltergeist was really the coming together of my love of ghosts and my interest in writing drama. And and, mm. uh, and that kind of opened the doors. And, you know, I mean, but even before Battersea, actually, I'd made a series called Haunted, which was about ghost stories, which very directly actually came out of the research for my play 222, A Ghost Story, that's been on this year in the West End, I was researching about ghost stories. I just said on social media, has anybody I know seen a ghost? <sighs> Lots of people gave me ghost stories. And then it was suddenly friends of friends and it was strangers and it kind of grew and snowballed. Yeah. And, and just I got all these ghost stories coming to me and I was like, I've got to do something with these. So then yeah. that, that gave birth to Haunted and that was back in 2017. Oh and I guess that, that was the prototype it's for just, Battersea Poltergeist and Uncanny. I just love how this and the success. And I love the fact that, you know, I drive into work down Shaftesbury Avenue on a Saturday morning and I drive past your play on Shaftesbury Avenue. And I love the fact and I just think, fuck, that's Danny. That's so, so cool and i love the fact that this is obviously it has lot it has long roots in everything you've been doing but also yeah it's just a twitter thread that's gone well brilliant love that amazing you know you put it out there and here we go it's funny isn't it how how things come about Mm. and you you never know what's going to make sense and what's going to lead you where and i um yeah i i think you know like collaborating with people who you collaborated with on stuff over the years and you know you kind of do some sort of throwaway thing with them years ago and then actually they come back into your life and they end up being a really important collaborator so uh, there's a lovely line from a poem by tennyson ulysses which is i am part of all that i have met and i always think about that and i think about how we're these kind of you know like this glass that can be filled up with um you know, little pennies, if you like. You can fill this glass with pennies. Each one of these pennies is a person you met or like a thing that happened to you or a story that someone told you. And it kind of fills up and up and up. And at the end of it, 
You're rich. Oh, that's great. Oh, good. <laughs> Shaftesbury Avenue, West End Theatre. You bloody are, don't you? You bloody are. Um, well, actually, I'm surprised you're not more poor, to be honest, with all the shopping you've been doing on Amazon. There's so much stuff. Um, look, this is really interesting. Uh, here on the 2nd of September 2014, this is obviously a very big part of your life. Uh, you've bought The Almost Nearly Perfect People by Michael Booth and Fishing in Utopia, Sweden and the Future That Disappeared. So there is a part of your life, and Aquavit and the new Scandinavian cuisine, there is a big part of your life that's Scandinavian uh, uh, and that's embodied in a person. Uh, so, so tell us about your Scandinavians connection, please, Danny, because we can see this here. Yeah, so in 2005, I was performing in a pub theatre in Camden and I looked out into the audience and I saw this girl who I instantly fell madly in love with. She, she had blonde hair, blue eyes. On stage? You were on stage? I was on stage oh. and she was in the audience, in the middle of the audience, a small theatre, like 50-seater theatre, so I sure. could see her really clearly, staring back at me. And... I just felt this incredible connection. And, you know, she now says she felt it too. And our eyes locked on. And I was like, I've got to talk to her after the show. And so I talked to her after the show. And basically, since then, we've never really spent a day apart. You know, like, it's my wife. And uh, and I talked to her and after the show. I had no idea where she was from. I couldn't place her accent. I was like, is she from Manchester? Where is she from? <laughs> and um, it turned out she was from Sweden. And... Um, and I didn't know anything about Sweden at all. I don't think at that point I even really knew that Ikea was from Sweden. I just had <laughs> zero knowledge of Sweden. And um, and then I went out to Sweden with her and met her parents. And the more I learned about it, the more I became fascinated by it. I think it's a really interesting country for British people because I think a lot of it is recognisable and similar. Mm. And I think that's why we enjoy a lot of Swedish culture, like, you know, the kind of Nordic noir detective things. It feels familiar yes. to us. And yes. yet it's also got this kind of exoticness to it as well. There's a sense that the Swedes do things better. I think we often look at Sweden as a model of how society should be. And, you know, you get politicians going out there and kind of trying to learn from the Swedes. And undoubtedly, they have a very good quality of life. And they, I mean, I'm not going to lie, they they do do things better than us. And, um, <laughs> I, and, I thought it was going to be a twist in the tale. I was waiting for you to say, well, they don't actually. The fact no, of the matter I mean, is... You know, well, you know, I can certainly... There are, you know, I, there, there are things I would criticise. I mean, I think yeah. sometimes it feels a little bit stifling and conformist and, and there is a kind of slight Stepford Wives kind of uniformity to some aspects of Swedish small town life. But, um, right. you know, but anyway, I became fascinated by Swedish society and, and obviously very much in love with my wife. And, um, and so I learned Swedish and I learned more and more about Sweden. And this kind of eventually gave birth to, um, a sitcom series called the cold Swedish winter, which yes. some people might know that I've done for radio four. It, it's kind of, I think we've done five series, of it now, and um, and it was about a man who moved to Sweden, played by Adam Richards, this stand-up comedian who moved out to Sweden, and about him adapting to Swedish life as a fish out of water, a fish in sort of very icy water, yeah. and um, yeah, and it's been a load of fun to write. We we we'd go and record it every summer in Sweden. We'd have a, a week in Sweden recording uh, Swedish actors. It was beautiful. It's really been a really blissful job, and for me, like really interesting, just exploring Swedish society, and and clearly. Yeah something I've got a deep connection with and now I have two half Swedish half English children Swinglish children so yes, yeah you know it's, it's it's been a pleasure and I've also written a play set in Sweden as well so I think it's it's a um it's a subject I keep coming back to do your kids speak Swedish my older son speaks it much better I think when my wife was um 
off on maternity leave with him. She spoke a lot of Swedish to him. And then I think when my second son came along, things were a bit more full on and you've got two kids and it was a bit more chaotic. And and she didn't manage to kind of do that kind of nice sort of, you know, speaking Swedish to him kind of really sort of, you know, intimate kind of focus. On, on that. And so he, he doesn't speak Swedish as well. The, the older ones had lessons as well and the younger one hasn't. But we're really hopeful that they both will do that, I think. Yes. I mean, it would be lovely. And we've talked a lot about would we go and spend a year living in Sweden. During the right. pandemic, that was all we talked about, really, that idea of moving to Sweden. Oh, my God, I can imagine. We, we were really close to it. And then Brexit. And suddenly it was impossible to do it. It's, it's mad. Like it went from being so possible. I could have literally just gone over there and lived yeah. there if I wanted to yeah. not be able to do it. And it wasn't, I mean, it was it was part Brexit, not being an EU citizen anymore, but also Sweden had really tightened their rules. They've had this horrible kind of uh, knee-jerk backlash to the fact that they were one of the most welcoming countries for refugees. They took in more refugees per capita, I think, than anywhere other than Yemen, I think I'm going to say. And oh, and wow. um, it was incredible, like really amazing. You know, Sweden totally changed almost overnight. They welcomed so many people. But unfortunately, there's been this backlash. And part of that is that they've really clamped down on people being able to go to Sweden. So now Eva, even though she is Swedish, wouldn't automatically have the right to bring her husband. And, and the mad thing is she's an EU citizen. So she could go to Denmark or Portugal or any other country and take me as her spouse. Because and you'd that's be fine. And you could just stay. In EU countries. Yeah, but, but she can't take me to Sweden. So it, it's become really difficult. We, we you know, it's a, it's a very different process to what it would have been. Mm, gosh, that's sad. That's very, very sad. By the way, I absolutely love that, that you were doing a gig and you just saw your wife in the audience. Did wh- How did the gig go? Because that would have put me off. That would have put me off. It went really well. The, the irony of it is that it was this show. I don't know if you remember the show I did called DJ Danny, which was oh, about yeah, of course. Oh, me, my God. Yeah, creating a DJ character. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. The whole show was kind of created to try and make me attractive to girls. And I was like going to go out and go to Edinburgh and go like, hello, ladies, you know, and kind of imagine every night kind of women swooning as I did this incredible DJ mixing character. And then I met Eva like a month before going up there. And clearly the idea of oh, meeting girls God. was off, off the menu at that point. You know, um, I... I mean, it really—it was love at first sight. It was wonderful. It was um, what the Swedes call Charlotte Vidfirsta Ergenkastet, which is love at first eye chucking. Um, oh, and yeah, beautiful. It was so romantic. Just, um, Someone put just, that on a card and frame it. That's gorgeous. <laughs> it was—it was beautiful there, and and you know we're still very much in love all, all, all this time later. You know, all these years later, and two kids later. And she'll know there's trouble if you reinstate DJ Danny character. That I mean, there's uh, problems afoot. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, good. Okay, uh, Dan Lee Robbins, let's move on now. Let's power on through loads of stuff for the kids here. Uh, we're seeing Playmobil sports stuff. We're seeing Disney Car Wars. Uh, we're seeing uh, the Cannon and Bull show, Mike Reed live at the Palladium. All for the kids. <laughs> That's definitely not for the kids. They, they love um, Mike Reed. What's going on with Mike Reed? Do you want to know why here? I bought those? Yes. Do you want absolutely. to know why I bought those? Yes. Okay, there is a reason, I promise you. Um, I wrote a play called End of the Pier, which was on at the Park Theatre a few years back, and um, it starred Les Dennis and oh, yes. um, and Blake Harrison from The Inbetweeners yes. and Nitin Ganatra from EastEnders who was brilliant and also Tala Gouveia who's now on that um, detective thing set on set in Bath with Jason Watkins that I can't remember the name of uh, but okay. anyway great cast but Les Dennis is the nicest man I've ever met probably I think he's such he's been on this podcast he came into this podcast and it was a delight it was I mean was, he is yeah. such a nice man but yes. um, but anyway the, the play was about two comedians, a father and a son. The father was part of that kind of old world working men's comic scene from the 70s, the kind of world of Can the Ball and yeah. Little and Large. And the son was a kind of new upcoming alternative comedian. And it was explored racism in comedy and explored the idea about, about how comedy needs victims and about how comedy can be a cruel and brutal and kind of negative thing as well as a positive thing. So sort of ex- explored the culpability and responsibility of comedy. And um, and so I found myself watching a lot of stuff from that era, that 70s era, Can the Ball, Little and Large, the kind of, uh, it's called, what's it called? The Wheel Tappers and Shunters Club, something like that. But like loads of, loads of the comedians, like loads of stuff from that era. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of it is quite bleak and drags you down. That You know, there is racism, there's sexism, there's a lot of kind of prejudice. But there are also some amazing talented practitioners and of comedy within that era as well. Some brilliant joke tellers uh, and you know some some people who were absolutely part of a tradition that stretched right back to Victorian musical. Mm. Uh, so it was a really interesting process looking at that period and comparing it to our time. And I, I hung out with one or two people. I met Sid Little, for instance. Oh really? And, um, oh my god! Yeah, I used to yeah, love Sid and Large. Spent a bit of time with Sid. I, I, yeah, yeah. I've got this amazing enduring memory of Sid in, in a dressing room in Hull. He was doing pantomime, and right. he was cooking his dinner. He had. I'm going to try and remember this. I think he had like a. It was like a sort of roast dinner and a summer fruits pudding from Marks and Spencer's. And he was cooking them by wrapping them in tin foil and sellotaping them to his electric radiator. Oh, wow. So he was, he, he was like heating them up on the radiator to eating them. Oh and I'm not sure if that's safe. I wouldn't want to endorse that method of cooking. Uh, and tell people to I do mean, that. I'm not sure if it's safe to eat a roast dinner you've cooked on a radiator. All it says on there is do not cover. At no point does it say <laughs> do not cook a roast dinner on here. That's exquisite. But it was That's beautiful. Exquisite. And th- there was me thinking, look, this is a man who played to 20 million people on yeah. um, on BBC One. At one point, he was a proper comedy god. I mean, those guys, it yes. doesn't get bigger than that. Can the no. ball, little and large. They were huge. The kind of viewing figures that we can only dream of now but um but you know he, he was incredibly humble and really nice and um and i think people of that era they find it quite hard to understand why it ended for them you know it was like that i mean it was yeah. it was seismic the end of that era was as, as mm. seismic as the dinosaurs 
being hit by the asteroid and, and life dying out. It just suddenly ended for that era of comedians. And, and very few of them are on your TV screens now. You know, you, you see kind of Bobby Ball, yes. you know, um, uh, when he was alive, he cropped up in um, Lee Max uh, not going out, you know, t- towards the end of his life. But, uh, you know, th- th- there was very few people like that who still sort of, you know, were around, you know, and kind of in our consciousness. I mean, most of the people kind of just disappeared they and just, were kind of banished. They just got you know? stopped. They just got stopped. But it wasn't like they were cancelled for being awful, particularly. Like, Russ Abbott, you still see every now and again, but you're right. I, I it, It's weird how overnight they seem to disappear. They, they, people talk about overnight success. You very rarely talk about overnight, for other than for reasons of being cancelled. Let's not get into that now. But that way, that idea of a generation being switched off just because of time passing was you're right it's extraordinary and I think they found it very hard to understand really and I think they they had this fundamental disconnect they couldn't see what was funny about in inverted commas alternative comedy you know their, their inverted comedies their inverted commas sorry you know they, they couldn't understand why that was funny at all and there was just, you know, the the younger comics coming through couldn't see what was funny about the old guys and the, the older guys couldn't see what was funny about the younger guys. I think now you get people, you look at someone like um, a Peter Kay or a Jason Manford, and I think they tap into that kind of older yeah. tradition, you know, that they kind of embody the best of that world, you know, that kind of lovable kind of, you know, the kind of working class kind of entertainer, you know, kind of proper crafted jokes. I think I think you see a kind of, there's a certain nostalgia for the good parts of that scene now. Do you ever think about going back to stand-up? Would you ever go back to stand-up again? No, and I think I probably have uh, nightmares every so often about being on stage, being a stand-up. I I, I don't think I was a natural stand-up. I, I love performing, and I, and I really enjoyed doing character performance, but I don't think I was yes. ever a natural stand-up being myself and telling jokes from myself on stage um I, I hadn't been on stage for about 10 years until i did a live tour last autumn of the battersea poltergeist my podcast and mm. i was a bit scared going back to it and i was a bit worried that i wouldn't be able to do it i have a recurring horrible flashback to a moment when i was in national youth theater as a kid mm. and i was playing first senator in a production of a fellow with oh. chuatal edgy as a fellow and oh Rachel Sterling was uh, Desdemona, and yeah. Orlando Bloom was a non-speaking soldier. I had more lines than Orlando Bloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had this tiny part, first senator, it's irrelevant part, and I dried on stage. And I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you the precise reason I dried. I'd uh. been to a eat-all-you-can-eat pizza buffet at Pizza <laughs> Hut beforehand and eaten too much pizza, and I was feeling a little bit bloated, a bit burpy on stage, and I couldn't really control the kind of 3D pizza burps I was doing in my mouth, and it just it threw me, and it, it, uh, it sort of distracted me from the bard's prose. And, um, and I lost my lines, and, and it was horrible, and my body went into spasm, oh, and God. I started... If you can imagine my leg sort of, and my leg was flicking out trying to sort of kickstart myself. It was horrible, like just spasming out. And um, and I just, it was, it was horrific. And it stays with me to this day. It's one of the worst oh. moments of my life. It's like it's like a nightmare come to life. Yeah. And um, and so it, it sits in my head every time I've got to do like public speaking, I think it's it's there ticking away. So um, so when I was on stage doing the Battersea Poltergeist live, you know, I was a little bit like, you know, can I do this? And yeah. went out and I was playing huge, ridiculously huge theatres. I was playing like, you know, Brighton Theatre Royal, Guildford G Live, which is like 2,000 oh, seater. You know, it was b- bonkersly big um, <laughs> theatres. And, and, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. That's the main thing. And, yeah. and I think we'll do more 
live uh, shows with Uncanny as well, hopefully. But I, 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 I do love it. I, I really, really get off on it. But I think it's probably good that it scares me a bit as well. It's that, you know, maybe, I don't know, is that a thing for all performers? I, I suppose you lose the fear after a while, don't you? But, but it, it, it keeps you on your toes and it makes you sharp. Yes, I think the, the key thing there is that you dried when you were an actor delivering lines. It's, it's completely different to being a stand-up or a host doing a podcast or doing stand-up because the whole point of stand-up, and I think that's why I leant towards it, is because the pure anxiety of being a required cog that has to move in that way and say those things for the whole show to work. I had... Uh, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> I didn't end up fitting on stage because you know i'd had uh i'd had too many uh quattro fromage that didn't happen to me <laughs> but i did have a very similar thing when i did a play in edinburgh 20 years ago and i had to it, i was it was the very naughty boy i don't know if you ever me doing that years ago with adrian Poynton, nearly 20 oh, years yes, ago yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Yeah. um and i was playing john cleese and um i just would have these and other actors talk about this when you're live on stage and you're doing the same thing every night you have an out of body experience you're not present anymore because other things going on and because you're so it's so automated it's so kind of muscle memory that your brain departs and then the, you're just flooded with adrenaline and then that's it you shut down whereas when you're doing stand up you can just weave in and out of that and that's okay it's it's a lie it's okay because you're in the moment so you talk about it you bring that into the show but when you're in a play you you're pretending that you're not really performing. And that's the kicker. Yeah, I, I remember, like, the, the very first day I started secondary school, we went in to our first ever PE lesson and we were all a bit scared. And th- there was this quite scary teacher there called Mr. Skirfield. And he went, he was giving us his tips on what to do in PE. And, yeah. and he was like, one thing, lads, that you must never do when you're doing PE is think, right? <laughs> because if you think, like, for instance, you're up on a trampoline, you're bouncing, you're in midair, you think... You have an accident. You know? <laughs> and, and at the time I was like, this is ludicrous. This man is telling me not to think. What's, it, what's he talking about? But actually, there's, there's a kind of kernel of truth to this. And I think the best sports people, and I would say the best actors too, that's the reason I'm telling this story, is that they are instinctive. Yeah. If you overanalyze it too much, if you think too much, you do throw yourself. I think you've got to I be see. in that moment. And I, you know, I could be playing tennis and I might be a, kind of a few points up and I'll start to think, oh, I, can I make this next serve? Am I going to do it? And I'll throw it and I'll lose the game. Mm. You you know, I, I, I'm always, I'm, I'm fascinated by sports psychology and I'm always admiring of like, you know, a, a Roger Federer who can be two sets and match point down yeah, and come back and win the game. How, how do you do that? You know, and it's all about being in that moment. And I think as an actor, you need to be in that moment. And I think maybe I'm more of a writer than an actor. I, I think I find it hard to be in the moment. I find myself analysing, looking at the situation, observing, you know, kind of having that outside eye, as you say. And that's when you start to sort of throw yourself. But actually, that's a great skill for a comedian, isn't it? Because to be constantly looking at what's going around on you and using it and drawing it in is exactly what you need in a comedian. Yes, and it completely consumes all the different parts of your brain. That's what comedians love, is that doing stand-up is is an absolute... like, Like, you know, you are absolutely in the moment and you cannot possibly think about anything else. Really, until you've really got some miles under your belt and then you can start to maybe wander around. But when you're in the moment, you are in free fall. Um, what, I fi- what I find really uh, sort of, I guess it's ironic, uh, the idea of you doing this enormous um, venue with the Battersea Poltergeist and, you know, a thing about fear. And in a way, you're kind of, you, you know, you've made, ent- you've made entertainment out of fear and yet your greatest fear is being an entertainer. In a way, that, that great fear that sits back <laughs> from when you were a kid is that moment. It's, it's just a really interesting kind of, I don't know, the, the two sitting together. It's weird. It's very interesting. You know, I mean, clearly the, the work I do now is about trying to induce a fear in an audience. And actually, 
the, the root of what your fear is doesn't matter in a way as long as you can tap into a certain kind of fear yeah you you can yeah. understand yeah. the fear of how people feel so I, you know i've not seen a ghost i live vicariously for the people i talk to but i can understand the fear through channeling a certain moment like you know i have a fear of heights or i you know that that fear of drying on stage you can kind of put yourself in the moment a little bit and and you know fear is a transformative thing it affects our mind it affects our body you know it's it's literally um something that that changes your whole physiology um mm. so yeah incredibly potent incredibly powerful look here you are again dipping your toe into the fear uh, richard wiseman's paranormality the science of the supernatural you bought this on uh, 7th of november 2016 so this is a obviously this thing is ticking along for you uh, and, and and clearly i mean this is again a part of this is what made Danny Robbins create Battersea Poltergeist, a pack of 24 spooky black plastic spiders for Halloween. I mean, there you are, Danny, once again, <laughs> dabbling in the occult. <laughs> From Richard Wiseman to plastic spiders, that's quite a leap. Um, no, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? it it's, it is interesting to look back and see the, the different um, inspirations along the way. And that's a really interesting book, Richard Wiseman's Paranormality. And I, I, um, I, I think that the, the work that I make attracts skeptics and believers in equal measure. And I think it also attracts an even bigger group of people in the middle who aren't sure. And I, I'm, you know, skeptics and believers is kind of as binary as Brexit, really. You know, it doesn't get more opposed than, you know, ghosts exist, ghosts don't, you know, that kind of mm. idea. It is life and death. And, mm. you know, I think that Richard Wiseman is an incredibly intelligent man. He's an incredibly brilliant uh, man and, and brilliant at sort of picking apart our superstitions and making sense of it and so on. But I, I find there's an aspect of that kind of scientific scepticism that is a little bit joyless for me. And I, I kind of feel like there's a danger in bleaching everything in the bright light of reason. We need to leave those shadows in the corner. We, as a society, we need to believe in ghosts. I think we have a real mm. need for them. And um, And so I think that you know, I, I can see why a lot of people come to my podcast because it appeals, you know, that, that idea that ghosts might exist is incredibly mm. appealing. The idea that there might be magic, you know, and I'm very careful of having a foot in both camps and sort of treading both camps. And, and I am a skeptic mm. who wants to believe, you know, I am yes. literally in the middle, torn between the two. So I think it's brilliant to kind of arm myself with the knowledge and theories of Richard Wiseman. But then also I love the idea that, he might be wrong and that there might be ghosts out there. And so I, you know, I, I really am that kind of agnostic between the two. Yes. And yet you said earlier on that you were a, a profound atheist and you come from a family of atheists. So, so ultimately, does that, have you at any point in doing Uncanny or the Battersea Poltergeist or all the plays, um, have you at any point actually stopped and thought, oh, well, maybe I've got this wrong. Well, I, I come from a family of profound atheists. My mum was brought up a Catholic and she really, really rebelled against it. She became very ardently atheist. Um, I, I, I was very conscious of an absence of belief as a kid and mm. going to my grandparents' house and seeing the pictures of the Pope and the slightly scary pictures of Jesus holding his sacred heart and l looking down at me. And, you know, I, I, I was intrigued by the idea that I wasn't part of this and that I was maybe missing out on something. I wasn't part of this club of believers. And, yes. you know, you know, some people would have found God and I found ghosts. I, I went into <laughs> ghosts. I, that was my magic. That was my belief. And yeah. um, so that's that's what led me to this, I think, in, in, in big part, I think. I, I love 
the idea that there might be something out there. So I, I'm a coward, essentially. I'm an agnostic. I reserve the right to be wrong. But has anything, has any of the stories, any of the uncanny things, because they are fantastic, and, and I assume a lot of my listeners will have listened to your podcast. If you haven't, guys, you must listen to Uncanny. It's and the Batsy Poltergeist. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, actually, Danny, interesting to talk about the, the way that there's no reason... I mean, obviously, I guess talking about ghosts, you should marry that up with faith. But it's quite interesting to to listen to Uncanny with my kids, and as as you know, because I've left you voice notes from my six and nine year old uh, <laughs> saying how much they enjoy the show. But it's quite interesting for us because we get to it's a very safe and contained way to talk about fear, but also to talk about death, and also to talk about belief and what people how people approach these great questions. And when they're six and nine. You can say, well, you know, was that true or not? Well, no, it wasn't true. I don't believe it was true. And we all sit in the car and discuss it. And it's it's fantastic. Um, but has there, in all these fantastic stories, has there been a moment where you're like, yeah, this is this is properly weird? Or do, does it, do you end up walking away from everything going, I've got, I've managed, I've managed what this story is in my head? No, and the opposite. I, mean, I would say that I choose stories where I, I can't uh, offer mm-hmm. easy answers and uh, solutions. I, um, you know, I, I think, I, think I, w- I would say all, all the stories really leave me with major questions. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are things that are genuinely inexplicable in pretty much all of them, really. And that's the enjoyment for me, actually. I think that, um, you know, a, a lot of people come to me wanting answers. You know, I get people saying to me like, so, come on then, do ghosts exist? Do they? Do they? You know, and yeah. I'm like... That's what I'm doing, Danny. You know, that is what I'm doing, I, yes. I can't correct. give you that answer. <laughs> I, can, I can't give you that answer, but also I'm not sure that you want that answer because actually in a way, the pleasure is the journey, you know. Um, mm. And, you know, a, a detective story is at its most enjoyable when you're not sure who the the murderer is, isn't oh, it? Yes. You know, like, you know, yes. You know, once you know the, the murderer, it's over, it's done, it's done. You know, you, then, then that book you've been loving reading, you can't read anymore. Yes. So I, I sort of feel like the reason that we are still obsessed with the Enfield poltergeist, the reason why Battersea had such a huge impact on people is because they are robust enough to deflect sceptics. You know, that, that you mm. cannot answer these things easily. And, you know, if you could, if I could just tell you, yeah, no, Battersea Poltergeist, that wasn't a ghost. Or even if I could tell you Battersea Poltergeist, that was a ghost. You wouldn't need to listen to the series because mm. there's your answer. And I think, you know, I love the mystery of it. I love the fact that these are these locked room mysteries with this cast of suspects where one of the suspects could be a ghost. And, you know, if you're a sceptic, it's a how done it. If you're a believer, it's a who done it. Who's the ghost? And yeah. they're endlessly fascinating and endlessly satisfying so i know i sort of feel like i choose my stories by the ones that send a shiver down my spine and by mm. the ones where i feel like this is not easy to answer you know if 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 i feel like i can just say well look it probably was sleep paralysis then there's no mm. need for me to tell this story because if i if i think that then the chances <laughs> are lots of people out there listening will you know i need to <laughs> find i need to find stories that are going to keep you up at night guessing it would be such a disappointing It'd be such a disappointing podcast where you absolutely conclusively within five minutes every time went, yeah, that's sleep paralysis, that's all that is. Uh, Yeah, that was a nervous breakdown, that one. Yeah, it's just your neighbour. But it it, it is a dilemma, though, because Mm. it's interesting. You were talking about your kids, and I was very touched by the the message that they left me on my phone the other day. That was lovely. I was kind of shocked, in a way, that your youngest is six and listening to it. I mean, a brave, brave boy. Because I I sort of find with my own two boys, one of whom is Mm. six and one's nine. Snap. It's difficult talking about these things. They're very aware that daddy is obsessed by ghosts and that he's doing stuff about ghosts all the time. And they're saying like, you know, 
is it real? Are ghosts real? And you, you kind of, you know, you have to say to them, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry, don't worry, ghosts and monsters are real. That's not real. But actually, yeah. when you are genuinely unsure yourself and when the programs are about that uncertainty, mm. it takes you into different difficult territory with kids, I think. You know, th- th- there is that uncertainty. Yes, well, of course, you, you can't, it's much harder for you. It's much easier for me because I get to be my Dawkins-esque uh, belligerent self and every time say well it's nonsense isn't it or enjoy the ride it's a roller coaster but for you if you are living it and your kids are asking it it's a completely different process because you've got to be honest and say well yeah K- kids need to deal in black and white they yeah. need star wars you know they need yes. jedi and sith luke and darth and and the world i'm dealing with is all about gray you know these are the mm. gray areas the uncertainties the the no man's land between life and death and, and that's a much scarier place than anything that George Lucas ever created. I tell you what's a much, much scarier place than any of the above. A kid's play tent. Yeah. 26th of July, 2017. Is there anything worse than getting into one of those? (laughs) £15 this cost for a visit to Hades. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, there is nothing uh, more terrifying than erecting a kid's tent. That that, that was hard work. Slotting all those poles into each. I remember being inside the canvas trying to slot in like, oh, Jesus, no, that's the wrong one. (laughs) Why does it say in the instructions? That's the longer one. No, that's the shorter one. Um, Yeah. Yeah. that That was hard work. I think it was used... Uh, once and put in the <laughs> cupboard. Put in the cupboard. Um, <laughs> they're also they're incredibly hot and they get incredibly messy. And the kids make you sit in there, and you are the size of the tent. And yes, but, yes, but, yeah, yeah. but here's but they work as a great analogy for the experience of being a parent to young kids, especially when we eventually dismantled the tent. We had, the tent was in their little playroom area for probably two years maybe two and a half years, and I hated it. And they'd go, I'd play in there with them and I'd be like, you know, whatever. And then one day it, it eventually had fallen apart and you dismantle it and throw it away and you feel tremendous sadness. Yeah. No, and you no. hate the whole thing while it's there. And then it goes and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh sure, sad sure. day. Isn't that weird? It's so annoying. Yeah. I mean, our, our, our attic is, is full of things that instill that kind of melancholy and poignancy. Yeah, yeah. Attics are for parents who can't let go. That's what they're for. <laughs> Find us on Twitter and Instagram. But there's loads of candles here. We've got packs and uh, dinner candles. This is very nice indeed. I love this. Um, and then we have got a, a tequila, uh, a miniature tequila. Uh, a Patron Reposado miniature tequila. This is on uh, December 2019. 18th of December 2019. This is the pre-Christmas thing here, getting the tequilas in. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds pretty posh as well. I mean, certainly, yeah, Eva got into her kind of exotic booze around that time. But interesting you mentioned the candles because that's a Swedish thing as well. Swedes love candles and you have candles even at breakfast as well. So um, really? like sometimes people come to our, our house and like we put out candles and they're like, ooh, special occasion. We're like, no, no, just, you know, you know, it's what you do. I think, you know, Scandies, because they, they live so much of their lives in the dark, yes. light becomes really, really important, you know. And I think c- candles have a sort of symbolic significance to Swedes. I think that that idea of light and warmth. And there's this word in Swedish, which is misig, which means uh, coziness. It's a little bit like that Danish word higga, higga, which became very popular a while back, you know, and became a sort of totally misused in terms of lifestyle and furniture trends. But yeah, it's not higga. It's just a pair of jogging pants. It's not higga. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, But, you know, that that need for coziness is really important when you live so much of your life in the cold and the dark. I mean, it also helps for the purposes of 
the narrative thread of this podcast, Danny, that, you know, lighting candles, a little bit spooky. So we're sort of, you know, you, sure, you can say it's part of the Swedish national identity, but, you know, the light and the dark, it does all sort of loop back in. There's there's themes here, there's texture to this. Oh, definitely. You know, we're back to Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Secret Hitler board card game. What's Secret Hitler, please? Oh, my God, this is such a good board game. It, it's... um. So, have you ever had Marcus Brigstock on this show? No, I haven't, and I must have. Okay. Yes. Okay, but, good. I mean, hopefully people know who I'm talking about. Marcus and I used to live together years ago, like, uh, when we were students, and um, he um, introduced me to this on his stag do. We went on his stag do, and he was like, do you want to play Secret Hitler? And I was like, what the hell is that? That sounds really weird. Why would I want to play Secret Hitler? And then he introduced me to it, and it's, it's like, you know that game Murderer, where you kind of... Um, you know, you sort of, you're trying to guess who is the murderer oh. in the circle of people. and Oh, my God. Uh, um, oh, yeah. God, what do we call it? Yes, I know the game. We we have played a similar game, and I can't remember what it's called now. That's going to drive me mad. Um, but yeah. yes, I but know anyway, that so, format. Yes. So, 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 I mean, the premise of the game, I think it was created by these hipsters in New York, and the premise of the game is that Hitler and the Nazis are trying to take over the Reichstag in the early 30s, and that one person in the circle is, is you know, some people are Nazis in the circle, some people are Democrats, and... and um, and uh, one person is Hitler, and, and you're essentially trying to work out who, who's what, and you're asking questions, and you're trying to deduce things, and mm. and it, it, it's a really gripping game. It's a really brilliant game, and and the idea behind it is that it does somehow kind of make you aware of the, the dangers of fascism and how this happened. You know, I mean, it's a sort of a, a game that sort of has a certain kind of political point to it as well. But yeah. but it's a hard game to introduce to people. You sort of... <laughs> it's a bad title for a game. I'm not going to lie to you. If you come up to me with your Aryan wife and casually say, with your candles lit, Danny, do you want to play Secret Hitler? I'm going to worry. <laughs> I, I can understand that, yeah. And I, I've said it to people in the past, you know, do you want to play Secret Hitler and got some funny looks. But but w- when you play it, it is incredibly gripping. It's incredibly addictive. And you've got to have that kind of the same qualities you have for poker. You've got to keep that poker face to kind yeah. of be able to be able to get away with it. Um, I love those So, yeah, I, I got really into board games around that period, I think. As, you know, a lot of people did. Board games had this resurgence, didn't they, kind of a couple of years ago. And, um, yes. Yes, you know, yes. it it became the the new kind of nostalgic kick to to be playing tabletop board games again. Yes, and here we are, twenty uh, fifth of March, twenty twenty, the beginning uh, of lockdown. I think almost to the day uh, when uh, you got <laughs> what? What does Danny Robbins do? Like lockdown has happened. Everyone's scared. Everyone's freaked out. It was a strange time. Danny gets poltergeist. That's what Danny does. Is that the Colin Wilson book? Yes. Yeah, so this is like one of the seminal texts on Poltergeist. Colin Wilson was this writer about the paranormal um, and um, kind of interesting man novelist as well. And um, so, yeah, it's a book all about Poltergeist. And that was the very beginning of Battersea Poltergeist because Battersea Poltergeist was commissioned exactly as we went into lockdown. So it was a real lockdown project. I made it during lockdown and it was released of January 21 it would have been January 2021 um so it spanned that period and 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 I think I'm pretty convinced it wouldn't have had the impact it did without the pandemic and lockdown because I think it plunged us as a society into a moment where you know for the reasons we talked about earlier we got very interested in ghost stories and the paranormal yeah. but also we became fascinated by this idea of a family cooped up that the story is about a family cooped up in their house the claustrophobia of it they're kind of cooped up because of the poltergeist but also because of the nation's press assembled outside and it was felt like a very relatable story i think and mm. also the third thing is that people would 
desperate to be entertained. Like all of us, we're just burning through entertainment at that point, weren't we? You, you mm-hmm. went through Tiger King, mm-hmm. you know, you went through Bridgerton or whatever. You were kind of going through all these things. You needed your next hit. And actually what we did was we did not give you the box set. We didn't give you the bingeable box set. We released an episode a week. Mm-hmm. And people at the beginning were going like, oh, how can you do this? Give me the binge. I want the binge. Yeah. And actually... Ultimately, they didn't because I think they really enjoyed. People really liked the fact that it was coming out once a week. It was something to look forward to. Yes. It was like your appointment to listen, and you could do your research on the case in between. You know, people were kind of <laughs> contacting Battersea yes. Library, getting old documents and maps, and yeah. and yeah. I just I think that was nice. And now I look at things like Yellow Jackets, the the American TV show, and the mm. Book of Boba Fett for the Star Wars fans out there. Mm. They're being dropped once a week. It's a serial thing again, and I think that. As a society, and Amazon is a huge part of this, as a society, we are jaded. We're jaded by the idea of having whatever we want, whenever we want it. You can have all the TV you want in the world whenever you want on Netflix and whatever. You know, Spotify gives you music whenever you want. Actually, it's lovely to have to wait and to be plunged back to that moment as a kid when you were waiting for... Doctor Who or whatever your, you know, your favourite show was, building up to it or, you know, having to take your money to the record shop and waiting to buy that record. We need that again, I think. We want to be made to wait and we enjoy that. Absolutely. We're culturally saturated and also we enjoy the moment of waiting. Like we were saying earlier on about the detective stories, the bit at the end is is disappointing and I mean uh, uh, there's a larger analogy for life in there somewhere I'm sure the bit at the end we all think we're heading towards this thing we're trying to get something better in our lives or bigger in our lives or more you know we've got this target and actually the bit on the way and this sounds like some sort of trite (laughs) philosophy now but it's true the bit at the end when it all wraps up together is a bit disappointing if you're made to wait that's the most enjoyable moment isn't there some sort of phrase some sort of line about life is the bits that happen whilst you're waiting for it to happen something like that you know there's definitely a sense that I think the greatest pleasure can often be taken with the least amount of anticipation. Yes, good, good, love that. Um, all right, Danny, look, so we are in lockdown now. Loads of stuff being bought. I mean, an insane amount of things. Uh, just to name a few, uh, we've got some heavy duty, thick, strong, professional bamboo plant support. So you're out in the garden. Miracle Grow as well. Um, uh, learn to read with Reading Eggs box set. So we're doing homeschooling as well. Um, yeah. It's, uh, I'm using the bamboo as a threat, actually. If, if my son didn't read properly, I would threaten him with the bamboo. Yeah, at that point, yeah, sharpened. Uh, very good, very nice. Um, I'm assuming that was a joke, fingers crossed it was. Um, and what else have we got here? Oh, look, classic. I mean, how many, how many of these got sold during lockdown? Finesse professional hairdressing scissors. Um, those were bought as well. We have got uh, gorilla gaffer and builder's tape. Um, so yeah, because you actually have to get the person to sit still whilst cutting their hair. So <laughs> it's important. Um, all right, okay. So listen, let's bang on through. Uh, all right, Danny, uh, let's leave the lockdown behind, thankfully, uh, and bash on through to to present day. Okay, we're going to come crashing through to present day as we get towards the end uh, of this episode of My Mate Bought a Toaster, uh, a quiet place, a masterpiece of suspense and terror. A quiet place, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was actually having a, a chat recently with the, the guy who produced it, so that's why I, I watched it beforehand but um nice. I um yeah I mean you know it, absolutely and it, I, I really enjoy watching horror films and it's something I don't get a chance to do very much because my wife is the most scaredy cat person I know <laughs> in the whole history of the world um 
and and she has never listened to an episode of my podcast. No, and she I hasn't listened to, drag, to any of it. Drag her. No, no, no. I dragged her screaming to 222 and she did actually enjoy 222. She didn't find it too scary. But, yeah. but if you want a, a quick story just to kind of give you an index of just how scary cat she is. Yes. So I was in my shed, which is where I record everything and do my writing. And I bought some new blinds and I pulled the blinds down. And so you couldn't see I was in the shed. You couldn't see the light. And so she couldn't find me in the house. She could see I wasn't in the shed. So she then became convinced that I had been murdered in the garden. <laughs> and um, and she would did what any sensible person should do. Yeah. And she locked the back door to the house to protect herself and the kids. And uh, and that was that. And 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 she called me and she called me up to check, you know, uh, if I was alive or not. Yeah. And uh, the, the phone's ringing and I go, hello. And she's oh, you're, you're alive. You're, oh, God, you're alive. I was like, yeah, of course I'm alive. I'm in the shed. And she was convinced I'd been murdered in the garden. And I said, well, like, you know, thanks for coming and checking then, you know, coming and seeing, yeah. you know, if my cops. And she was like, you know, don't be silly. That That's what happens. You know, you go and check in the horror film. That's when you yourself get killed. You know? So she was very sensible. But but yes, yeah, so, I mean, anyway, I, I, I don't get to watch horror films much. And, and mm. the only time I ever get to watch anything is maybe like I've, I've, I've got this thing now actually I bought myself a running machine that I've got in the office oh, yeah. and the only time I sort of seem to be able to watch like what I want to watch now is on this running machine I put an iPad in front of the running machine and I sort of run along and watch kind of my gory horrific terrifying Great. horror movies I'm not allowed to watch yes, anywhere else yes and they're quite comforting as well because when it gets really scary and you need to run away you can just crank the speed up a bit and yeah, you know totally. feel like you're sprinting to safety um, well we are sprinting towards the end of this episode of My Mate Bought a Toaster uh, Danny listen it's been so lovely to catch up with you and uh, thank you for letting me uh, rampage through your Amazon purchase history. Um, congratulations on everything. Um, what's going on with Uncanny, please? Like, this is now me just talking as a fan, not an interviewer. When are there more? We will be back. We'll do more. So the, the next thing I think we're going to do is another case like Battersea Poltergeist, where we will tell one story across eight episodes through drama and documentary. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there'll be more Uncanny. I mean, the, the beautiful thing is there's so many people sending me in yeah. these incredible stories and, you know, just... I'm so excited to tell them that they're, they're, you know, they read like real life Stephen King novels. I'm always struck by the eloquence of the people telling them. They're so articulate. And I think recently, I kind of, I think I cracked the reason for that. I think the reason is the level of fear. I think if you've experienced that degree of fear, it makes you eloquent because the only way you can convey the fear you felt is by explaining it well, you know, like, and any ghost story is about the need for the storyteller to instill the fear they felt in other people, I think. So, you know, I I think people remember this so, so clearly, and it could be like 30, 40 years ago, and they will never forget. They remember every single detail. Danny, uh, thank you so much for joining me on My Mate Bought a Toaster, and huge thanks to that little old lady just behind you on the Zoom call. She's been there the whole time. (laughs) Uh, Dan, thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you, Tom. That was a pleasure. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Funny, you know, Jason Manford, I went out for a coffee with him the other day, and he told me this story about how he'd been in a theatre. I can't remember which theatre it was now, in some West End theatre, talking to his kid on Zoom like this. Mm. And the kid said, who's that man in the background? Theatres are fucking spooky. Theatres are fucking spooky. And and, and Jason looks around and goes, there's no one there. And, And the kid describes the man. And I think he describes a soldier and... Then subsequently, they found out that somebody had died there. Somebody dressed as a soldier and like what? properly eerie, properly unsettling story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ever see him, ask him to tell you the story about that. Oh my god! It's my mate,
absolutely love that bit at the end. By the way, here's a spooky story about Jason Manford, who has also been on My May Bottle Toasty. If you've not listened to that episode, listen back just for the bit where he fries cat shit. Um, yeah, I thought that was a delightful moment at the end. Danny Robbins just dropping casually a wonderful spooky story. Uh, thank you for listening. How good was that? Isn't Danny brilliant? And it goes without saying, if you haven't uh, listened to Uncanny, his podcast, uh, or the Battersea Poltergeist, then I really, really recommend it. They're just brilliant, brilliant listens. Um, that's the end of My May Bottle Toaster for another week. Last episode of the series next week uh we've got the wonderful angela barnes coming on the show really excited to welcome her on uh to my mate bottle toaster and then there's going to be a couple of best ofs which is exciting and then we'll have a break and then maybe we'll do another series yeah, maybe we will we'll definitely will um so that's the plan all right team all the best patreon patreon patreon.com forward slash toaster pod patreon patreon.com forward slash toaster pod hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.